Good morning. My name is Wayne. I'm the pastoral assistant here at City Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can feel free to use the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. In those Bibles, you'll find Ephesians chapter 5 on page 978. For the past few weeks, we've been working through a a new sermon series that we're calling Sent. And as we go through this series, we're looking at how the Holy Spirit invades our lives and empowers us to go out and live as representatives of Christ, to live as God-sent people in the world. So we kicked off our series a few weeks ago by looking at John chapter 20, where we see Jesus sending his disciples out, and he tells them that he is going to send them just as the Father sent him. And he tells them to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 1, where again, we see Jesus telling the disciples to receive power from the Holy Spirit as he sends them out to make disciples of all the earth. And in that chapter, we talked about how as followers of Jesus, we are called to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, not on our own power, not on our own strength or skill as we serve Jesus. And then last week, Jason took us through Ephesians chapter 4 as we talked about how we're called to fill up the space around us as the body of Christ. We're called to have a noticeable presence in our communities and in our neighborhoods. And what should be noticeable about our presence is that things are better when the church is present. So this morning, we're going to continue to look at what it looks like for us to bring change to our communities as we look at Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. Let's take a look at that passage together now. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words." For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's take a minute and pray now as we prepare to look at this passage this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that... 
You call us together each week to be encouraged by your word and by this body of believers. And I pray that as we walk through this passage together this morning, that you would reveal yourself as the true light to us, that you would teach us what it looks like to live in light, to live as your followers. I pray that you would encourage us and that you would challenge us with your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to look at this passage this morning, it's important for us to recognize that the passage we're looking at actually comes toward the end of this letter. So before we jump into this particular passage, we need to take a step back and think about what comes before this part of the letter so we have some context. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is giving a basic outline of what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul talks about doctrine. He talks about what we're called to believe as Christians. And then he also talks about how we are called to live that out. He tells us that we have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, as heirs to the throne, not because of our own works, but because of God's grace and mercy through Jesus' work on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. And then he encourages us to be rooted in the love of Christ so that we can be filled with the fullness of God. And he tells us that we should live in unity as the body of Christ and seek transformation from our former lives to newness of life through the Holy Spirit. And in our passage this morning, we see that Paul challenges us to walk in love and to live as a light in the dark places around us. Last week, Jason used a phrase that he used to use really often. In fact, he used it so often that he joked last week, those of us who have been around for a while might be sick of hearing it. And when he made that joke, I knew where he was going before he even said the phrase. The phrase that he used is, the indicatives always precede the imperatives. Now, what that means is that God never starts by telling us what we are supposed to do. We never receive commandments without first receiving a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture. We see it in Exodus 20, where right before God gives down the Ten Commandments, he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we also see it in Matthew 28, where Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he tells them to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations and reminds them as he closes, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this passage that we're looking at this morning is no exception to that rule that the indicatives always precede the imperatives. In Ephesians, Paul teaches us that we are called away from certain things and we are called to new things as we leave behind our old lives and enter into a newness of life. And we will get to those things that Paul tells us we're called away and called to, but before we begin to think about how we're called to respond, it's important for us to first be reminded of what has already been done for us. Because in being reminded of what Christ has done for us, we're also reminded of why Jesus has the authority that he claims over our lives, and why we should trust him to tell us how to live our lives well. So let's start off by looking at verses 1 and 2 as we think about what Christ has done to deserve the authority to tell us how to live life well. Paul starts off by saying, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, notice what Paul does not say about us here. He doesn't call us the slaves of God. He doesn't call us the prisoners of God. He calls us the beloved children of God. And remember, in an earlier chapter in Ephesians, we've already heard that we were adopted into the family of God, not because we earned our way in, but because God is merciful and gracious. Through no merit of our own, we've been invited out of our former identity of strangers in the kingdom of God, alienated from God by our own sin, 
into a new identity as beloved children. And then Paul goes on to say that Christ gave himself up for us. He reminds us that it was not our works that earned our way into God's family, but that Jesus freely gave himself up for us while we were still undeserving so that we could be forgiven of our sins and welcomed into the family of God. So Paul begins in this passage by telling us who we are. He tells us that we are the beloved children of God. And then he reminds us of what's been done for us. He reminds us that Jesus laid down his life to welcome us into that family. And only after laying that foundation does he move into talking about what we've been delivered from and what we're now called to. If we don't start with that foundation that Paul starts with this morning, then everything else we're going to talk about crumbles. Because we begin to see the Bible as a book of moralistic lessons to control us and to tell us how terrible we are when we mess up. The Bible does teach us how we should live, but God only calls us to do after reminding us of what he's done for us. So as we move on to look at what we've been called to do this morning, it's going to be crucial for us to remember that as our foundation. It's crucial for us to remember that Paul is not speaking to us as slaves, but as beloved children of God. The children of God that God loved so much that Jesus gave up his life for us to welcome us into that family. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look at what it is that we're called to. And we can start in those same two verses to get an idea of what we're called to. Paul tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children. And we've already established that this phrase, beloved children, is crucial to our identity. So it's crucial to our, for us to remember that that's how God sees us before we even begin to think about what we're called to. But it's also crucial for us to understand what it is that we're called to. And if you've spent any time around children, then you've already seen this at some point in life. Children are naturally imitators of their parents. As children grow up and learn to be adults and learn how to act like adults and talk like adults, they learn that by watching their parents and imitating them. And that's what we are called to do with God as our Father. We're called to imitate God our Father as his beloved children. So in this first verse, we see Paul telling us to be imitators of God as his beloved children. And he's telling us that we are called to use God as our example when we want to learn how to live. We're called to do things that don't make any sense. Not because they're exciting, not because we want all of the attention, not because we want people to see how great we are, but because we want to be more like Jesus. In the second verse, Paul goes on to say that Jesus gave himself up for us. That's our example. That's the example that we're called to be imitating. We should be giving ourselves up just as Jesus gave himself up for us. And that means giving ourselves up for our brothers and sisters in the family of God, for our neighbors that live around us, and even for people that we would consider strangers, just as we were still strangers when Jesus gave himself up for us to welcome us into the family of God. We're called to sacrifice ourselves for people who don't seem deserving to us, just as Jesus gave himself up for us while we did not deserve his sacrifice. We're called to live in such a way that the people who come into contact with us will have a better understanding of God's sacrificial love because they've spent time with us. If we live our lives as imitators of our Father God, then our lives will be noticeably different because of our willingness to make sacrifices for the people around us. And if we look at verse 8, we'll see another way that we, our lives should be noticeably different from the world around us. Paul goes on to say, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
Paul says that we're called to stop living in darkness and begin living in light. And not only does he say to stop living in darkness, but he goes as far as to say that we were darkness, but we are now light. He's making a drastic distinction here, a very clear distinction. There is no in-between. We're either darkness or we are light. He's saying that we've been called out of our former lives into a radically different life, and we can't bring parts of that former life with us because the two stand in direct opposition to one another. He tells us that we're called to leave behind sexual immorality, covetousness, and crude talking in exchange for thanksgiving, love, and celebration of our new identity as heirs in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 14, we see that Paul also quotes what commentators seem to think is a combination of references to different passages. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, he's making this very clear distinction here. He's saying that we were dead and we're now alive. Things have to change. We've been called out of one life into a new life that's drastically different. But at times, we don't feel like we're that different than we used to be. We try to bring our former darkness with us into the light. There are times where we continue to find our identity in the darkness that we've been called out of. A few years ago, Christina and I had the opportunity to see the one-man show of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And I've talked about this before, but it fits really well here, so I want to bring it up again this morning. The Great Divorce follows the story of a group of people who are taking a trip from hell to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they realize that this place is the most beautiful place that they've ever seen. But in a sense, everything around them is more real than they are. They find that the grass that they're standing on is more solid than their feet, that the leaves are too heavy for them to pick up. And they're told that if they stay, they'll gradually become more real. They'll become more alive. They'll cease to be the shadows that they currently are, and they'll become more fully human. It will get more comfortable over time, but it is going to take time. And at one point in the story, one of the characters in heaven who has already become fully human says to one of the characters who's visiting, reality is harsh to the feet of shadows, but will you come? It's difficult for us to walk in the light when we're used to walking in darkness. It's painful to have our brokenness exposed. But God calls us out of our darkness into the light. And why does he do that? Does he do it to punish us? God calls us out of darkness into light because the light is better for us. Later in The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis is talking about making a trip up this mountain that the visitors see that's meant to represent heaven. And he says, Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with the richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. We're called out of our poor, weak, whimpering, whispering lusts into rich desires for Christ. We're called out of the darkness because when we become imitators of God, we become more fully human. We become what God created us to be. 
So what does entering into this new life have to do with the sermon series we're going through? How does living in the light tie back to living as God's sent people? We see that we're called to this new way of living, and we're called away from chasing after the desires of the world. We're called to be imitators of Christ. We're called to be imitators of God as our Father. And Paul says that because of what Jesus did, we are no longer darkness. We're now light. So what does light do? It exposes and erases the darkness around it. And that's what we're called to do as we interact with others. Let's look again at verses 7 through 14. Paul says, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're called out of our darkness into the light so that we can then expose the darkness around us. But what does that look like? Because there are a lot of ways that we could get that wrong. In fact, there are a lot of ways that the Christian community has already gotten that wrong. And when we get it wrong, we may, in fact, expose the darkness, but we also push people away. At times, we maybe even push people further into the darkness in our attempts to expose the darkness. When we get this wrong, we come off as judgmental, as self-righteous. And a lot of times when we get it wrong, it's because we're trying to take the easy way out. Many times when we get this wrong, the reason that we get it wrong is because we don't take the time to get to know the communities and the people that live around us. And so we try to rush through the process of loving people and caring for them. And when we do things the quick way, we begin to get sloppy. What we end up telling people is that we don't really have time to care about them. We don't really have time to get to know them. We just want them to know all the things that they're doing wrong and how terrible they are for those things. And who wants to listen to that? We're not called to rush through life, to rush through caring people, acting like we're too busy to get to know people because we have to go spread light somewhere else. Living as light in the darkness doesn't mean that we embrace our social media culture, where we engage in heated debates, telling people how wrong they are, how foolish their opinions are, all the while keeping ourselves at an arm's distance. We're called to be light. We're called to live as light in our communities, and that means being meaningfully engaged in the lives of the people around us. It means walking together through life, caring for one another, laying down our lives for people who seem undeserving to us. When we engage in our neighbors' lives, we're able to see their struggles, and we're able to understand their needs so that we can learn what it looks like to serve them well. Instead of having to make assumptions about what we think people need that maybe end up even being hurtful to them, we take the time to get to know our neighbors in our communities and to find out what it looks like to serve them well before we begin to act. And that's actually where the idea of the third place came from. I'll admit that we don't do everything right as a church, but it is important for us to take time to celebrate together when we have opportunities to remember times where we've served our neighbors well. And we've already heard Terry talk about this morning an opportunity that we have in the future to serve our neighbors at the third place. 
In a few minutes, we're going to hear from the new leadership team of the third place more about the vision that, that is behind some upcoming events. But a, uh, a few months ago, I had an opportunity where I was really encouraged by hearing an example of a time where we have already cared well for our neighborhood through the third place. At this point in time, I was sitting down with a few of our neighbors at the third place, spending some time together, and one of our neighbors made the comment that, well, we as a neighborhood should just pull our money together and buy the third place for City Church. And when he said this, I was sitting next to him. I was a little uncomfortable with that idea. This is a person who has never stepped foot into this building, has never attended a worship service, has never attended a community group. So I didn't want to just say, oh yeah, that sounds great. Please buy a building for us. So I started to say and said, well, yeah, and if we did that, maybe it could just be a space that's run by the neighborhood. You know, City Church wouldn't necessarily have to keep control. We could work together with the neighborhood. And he stopped me and said, no, if we're going to do this, we need to do it well, and City Church runs it well. If we're going to be able to gather this money, then we need to make sure we have a plan behind it, and City Church has a plan behind this. Our goal of starting the third place was to fill a need in our neighborhood, to care for our neighbors well. And although we may not have talked as much about the third place on Sunday mornings or in our community group gatherings lately, our neighborhood still recognizes the impact that that's having. And our neighbors feel well cared for by City Church because of our investment in the third place. That's our goal when we look to live lives of light and fill needs around us. We want people to feel well cared for so that by spending time with us through our lives, people understand God's love for them. We're called to be a consistent light shining in our neighborhoods and in our communities to expose the darkness around us in love. We're called to be imitators of God. And God doesn't start off by telling us all that we've done wrong. He starts off by loving us. And we're called to do the same. We have to start by loving our communities and by loving the people around us. And then in verse 16, we see that Paul tells us to make the best use of our time. We're called to look for opportunities to expose the darkness around us because we love the people around us, because we care about them deeply, and we want to see them step out of the darkness into the light. Maybe as you sit here this morning, you're thinking, well, if that's how Christians approach me, then I might actually consider listening. If you actually took the time to get to know me and care about me and love me first, then maybe things would be different. But maybe that's not what you've experienced with the Christian community. Maybe you've been told how awful you are. Maybe you feel that you've been condemned by people who never took the time to get to know you in the first place. Or maybe your experience with Christians is that you've heard them badmouthing other people, badmouthing other groups around you. So maybe your experience has taught you that Christians are just a group of people who think they're better than everyone else. They're a group of people who pretend to be perfect so they can judge everyone else, and then when they make a mistake, they shift blame. They try to shirk their responsibility for their mistakes. If that's been your experience with the Christian community, then it's time for us to admit that we as Christians need to be more honest about who we are. We do fall into this trap of believing that if people knew who we really were, if people knew that we weren't perfect, then they wouldn't listen to us. And when we fall into that trap, what happens most of the time is that we alienate people. We are called to imitate God, but we are certainly not called to convince ourselves and everyone around us that we are perfect like God is. 
We're called to be gracious, forgiving, and loving. And part of that means that we have to be honest about our own struggles. We have to admit that we are no better than anyone else, and that we don't gather here on a weekly basis because we think that we have earned God's favor. We're here because we desperately need God's love just as much as anyone else. One of my favorite songs is a song called The Struggle, and the chorus of that song goes, Hallelujah, we are free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. Your blood bought and makes us children. Children, drop your chains and sing. And the lead singer of the group that sings that song said that as he wrote those lyrics, what he had in mind was that most churches are really good at telling half of the story. So we're either really good at proclaiming Jesus' power over sin and proclaiming that because of Jesus, we're now free from sin. We emphasize that the same power that brought Jesus back from the grave lives in us, and so we're no longer bound to our sin. Or we're really good at emphasizing grace. And we spend our time talking about how God's grace is so expansive, it covers all of our sin. So we don't have to worry every time that we make a mistake that God won't love us anymore because God's grace is deeper than we could ever imagine. But we usually end up missing one side or the other. And if we emphasize grace too much, then we leave people wondering what is the point of even trying to break free from sin? Because if God's grace is so big, then why try? But if we emphasize Jesus' power to free us from sin too much, then we leave people wondering, well, why am I still struggling? I mean, am I not saved? Am I not one of God's adopted children? Because you're telling me that if I was, then Jesus should have freed me from my sin by now. So we have to remember both sides of the story. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are no longer slaves to our sin. We're free. Jesus has invited us into this new life, so we don't have to struggle to be free. But the reality is that we do still fall, and when we fall, we fall into an ocean of God's grace. That's the good news. That's the foundation of our faith. Hallelujah, we are free to struggle, but we are not struggling to be free. And when we believe that, and when we can be honest with ourselves about that, then we learn what it looks like to be the light that graciously and lovingly exposes the darkness around us. As I come to a close this morning, I want to end by sharing a quote from Madeline Lengel, who is the author of A Wrinkle in Time. She says, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning again. I thank you that you have called us out of darkness, that you have carried us out of darkness to be your light in this world. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek to live as light. I pray that you would show us the opportunities to love people around us well, that you would help us to see our neighbors, that you would help us even to see the stranger as you do, that you would help us to love them as representatives of your, of your good kingdom. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember how you love us, that all of our motivation would be because you first loved us, because you first sacrificed for us, and so now we are freed to go out and make sacrifices in your name. I pray that you would help us to believe that there is power in your name to free us from sin, and that you would also help us to rest in your grace when we fail. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.